Amen. Well, my junior year, I was, um, I was studying for a finance exam, getting ready for my big finance exam, the first one. So I was like, you know, it's the first one, so you really study hard. So I'm sitting there studying for my finance exam, and then get a text message from a buddy named Steve-O. And Steve-O says, hey, Wes, let's go play ball tonight. And I'm like, hey, man, I can't play basketball tonight. You know, like I have a big test tomorrow. I can't do it. Then get a phone call from Steve-O. He goes, hey, Wes, come on, man. Let's play basketball tonight. We really want to play, blah, blah, you know. And I'm like, hey, man, really got a test. I can't do it. And then a few minutes later, I hear, go and open up the door. It's my buddy Steve-O. Right? Now, here's what you need to know about Steve-O. Steve-O is about 6'5", 250 pounds, built like a tank. You know, I'm about 5'9", 140, built like a Prius. And so when he says, like, hey, Wes, let's go play basketball, eventually I just had to go, right? So I jump in his car. We go play ball. I'm out there. I'm sure I'm just draining three after three, just, you know, crossing fools over, just killing it. Like, my game obviously would be. Um, so I'm doing that, and then all of a sudden, well, you're going to see my game's really like. I'm, like, doing that, and I'm running, and literally I just, like, fall down. Like, I was running, like, down the court. And I fall down, and I get up, and my knee starts hurting a little bit. Gets a little tight. I'm like, you know, I get somebody to sub in for me. I just go sit down on the sidelines thinking, no, no big deal. And then after the game's over, I start to try to get up. But then when I put, you know, any pressure on my knee, it just really, really starts hurting. And I can't even put any pressure on it. And so uh, my buddy, Steve-O, he uh, come and grabs me like a small child and just picks me up and walks me out of there. I ended up going and having an MRI and found out that I had torn some, you know, some, um, some ligaments in my knee and stuff like that. So eventually I have surgery, like probably a lot of you guys have done. I have surgery, and then I, uh, I rehab for nine months. If you've ever been through a, you know, a, a knee surgery, it's not fun. So I rehab for nine months. I'm so excited. I move up to North Carolina. I'm starting to start my job here at, some, uh, at Summer College. And my physical therapist is like kind of doing these things. She says, hey, Wes, I want you to just go see this doctor over here. I'm like, okay, no big deal. I go and see this doctor. He's a surgeon. I wasn't thinking anything at this point. I go in there. The surgeon kind of feels my knee a little bit, and she says, Wes, I hate to tell you this, but your surgery has failed. And at that moment, I didn't really have a category for like a failed surgery. You hear about people having surgeries all the time, they come back you know, better than ever or whatever. And so I actually left the doctors. I went to, I was on staff at UNC at that point. I went to UNC, I went to the Arboretum. I, I found this bench, I, I remember the bench right now. And I sat there, and I literally just started crying. And I started asking this question, God, what are you doing? God, why would you let this happen to me? Fast forward the story a little bit. A couple months later, the day before my surgery, this kind of fixed all this, I get a phone call at 9 o'clock at night from my surgeon. Never a good phone call. Your surgeon's calling you. She calls me and says, hey, Wes, sorry, I've been looking over your, you know, everything going on, and I really hate to tell you this, but before we can do the surgery to fix everything, your bone has actually kind of bent under the pressure of your body, and so I actually have to go in first and saw through your shin, put a giant plate with eight screws. I have to let that grow back, and then I have to do another surgery. She's like, it's gonna, the first one's going to be extremely painful. The full process is going to be about a year and a half, almost two years recovery. And I got that phone call from her that night, and I was at Pelican Snowballs when I got the phone call. And I really, I just started crying. And I remember going and talking to a guy named Dave Turner, who was the college pastor there, and I just remember crying and saying, like, you know, why would God let this happen to me? God, what are you doing? A couple years ago, I started having some pain in my back and down my left side. I lost the feeling in my left foot for a while, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was going to doctor after doctor. Nobody could figure it out. 
Eventually, they figured out I needed hip surgery. So I, I have this hip surgery. I rehab for a while. Then all of a sudden, I started having this, the pain comes back. I go back to the surgeon. He says, man, Wes, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but your surgery's failed. He said, this isn't very often. It happens about one in a thousand times. I mean, he's, this doctor is good. Literally, princes from Saudi Arabia fly over to have surgery with this guy. He's the best. He's like, hey, I have no idea what to tell you, but it failed. I have the surgery again the second time. Six weeks after I have it, it failed again. And in that moment, I'm asking, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you showing up for me? I don't know, but I'm not sure if I'm the only person that's ever asked that question. But have you ever thought, God, what are you doing? Why won't you show up for me? When we have these moments, we begin to do a couple things. We begin, whether you're a Christian or not, honestly, you begin to either question God's goodness or question his existence. And we begin to wonder, who is God, and is he real, and is he there? And my guess is, in a room this size, there's been a lot of disappointment. Whether it's just with COVID over the last year, you didn't get to have the, you know, the senior year that you had hoped, or maybe you didn't get the freshman year experience that you were planning. Or maybe for, you know, for some of you, there was a guy or there was a girl that you thought was the one, you thought was the one you were going to marry, you were so excited, and they broke up with you. Or maybe... You've just been struggling with loneliness or anxiety or depression, and you're like, God, what are you doing? Or maybe a person that you really, really love, a person that you care for a lot, has passed away. Or maybe you have some illness or some diagnosis that, that doctors can't figure out. Or maybe you sat down at the dinner table one time and one of your parents said to you, to your siblings, hey, you know, we love you, but me and your mom or me and your dad, we just can't work things out and left. Or maybe they didn't talk to you at all. I don't know what it is and what kind of disappointment that you've experienced in life, but the reality is all of us have experienced disappointment. All of us will experience disappointment. Disappointment is part of life. But the question is, what are we going to do with it? In the midst of it, what are we going to think about God? And what is God going to think about us? Here's what the hope that I have for you is this is not a question the Bible doesn't answer or doesn't address. This is a question that has been asked for thousands of years. And tonight, actually what we're going to do, we're actually going to see Jesus show up in the midst of two sisters who are grieving and who are disappointed. And my hope is, how we see Jesus responds to them can give us hope in the midst of our disappointment. That's my hope tonight. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John 11. And John 11 is the passage we're going to be going through tonight as we talk about Jesus and the disappointed. So the context of the story, just to kind of get you brought up here, is in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. So Jesus heals this blind man, and a couple things happen once Jesus does that. The first thing that happens is when Jesus heals this blind man, people begin to see, man, Jesus is a miracle worker. He has power. Like, this, he's amazing. And on the other side, the religious leaders begin to say, okay, we don't like this Jesus guy. He's taken all of our glory. We're not sure about him. And actually, beginning in John 9, they begin to plot, um, they begin to want to kill Jesus. And so because that happens in John 9, Jesus leaves that area and goes to another area just to kind of be safe. 
But in that area he had just come from, there's a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus has two sisters. One is named uh, Martha, and one is named Mary. And a couple things we learned. First, we learned that Lazarus is sick, that he had gotten some kind of illness. And Mary and Martha, who are Lazarus' sisters, uh, Lazarus, yeah, they're sisters, they send a letter to, uh, a note uh, uh, to, to Jesus saying, hey, Lazarus is sick. But what they say is, Lazarus, the one whom you love. If you see the first couple of verses here, over and over again, the writer tells you that Jesus loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Didn't, he wasn't just acquaintances with them. He didn't just hang out with them every now and then. It seems like every time Jesus was in this city, he was at their house. He had refrigerator rice. He could just walk right in, open it up, grab whatever he wanted to drink. He was like family to them. And so you can imagine Mary and Martha, they think, okay, Jesus just healed a dude he didn't even know. Of course he's going to come and heal Lazarus, somebody who he sees as like a brother. Of course he's going to show up. And so Jesus gets the letter, and this is what we hear. Look at, look at verse 4. This is what it says. But when Jesus hears that Lazarus, Lazarus is sick, he says, This illness does not lead to death. He's talking to his disciples. But it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, a couple things you see here. First, Jesus says, hey, this illness actually is not going to lead to death. Actually, we see that this is actually going to be for God's glory, even specifically to glorify Jesus as the Son of God. But the second thing he says is super interesting. Look what it says. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Once again, John is wanting us to remember how much Jesus loves them. So Jesus loves his family like crazy. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Now, that word so doesn't make any sense. If it said, Jesus loved them, or then it said, even though he loved them, he stayed, you know, two days longer, that would make a little more sense. But we see here that says, so Jesus loved them. Because Jesus loved Lazarus, he stayed. Now, there's a couple things that this shows us. First thing is that Jesus is intentionally waiting And this waiting is not a sign of indifference from Jesus, but it's actually a sign of his love. Now, I think this shows us something very important that we've got to understand that's really hard to get. And that is we cannot judge Jesus' love for us based off our circumstances. Because if we just thought about the fact of the circumstances, it would seem like Jesus doesn't care about Lazarus, but actually he really does. And we can't always understand why God is doing what he does. We can't always understand why God waits and doesn't show up when we do. But this text shows us that Jesus' waiting is not because of his indifference, but because of his love. So that means when in your life, when he doesn't show up, it's not because of his indifference, but it's because of his love for you. Sometimes in life you have ten surgeries instead of one. And it doesn't make sense. And it can be really, really hard. Let's just be honest. That truth doesn't make it easy. But even when Jesus' timing is different than our own, we can know he's doing it out of his love. So in verse 7 through 17, Jesus waits a couple days, and then eventually Lazarus dies. And it says in verse 14, Jesus literally knows when he dies. He says that Lazarus is dead. And he tells his disciples, all right, Lazarus is dead. Now let's go back and see him. And the disciples are like, hey, hey, Jesus, I don't know about that. One thing, he's dead. Why are we going to show up now? Two, remember over there, they want to kill you in that city. Why do we want to go back there? So the fact that Jesus is even showing up in that city shows his love anyway. 
But verse 17, this is what it says, picking up the story. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now two things we see here. First is this. Lazarus had been in the, day, been in the tomb for four days. That's actually really important because back in that day, in Jewish culture, they believed this. They believed that when somebody died, that their spirit would, would kind of come out of their body and just kind of hover around them for three days just to check in out if he came back to life or not, right? Eventually, the spirit would be like, all right, this guy's dead. He ain't coming back, so I'm out of here, right? So after three days, he left. And so by saying that Lazarus is in the tomb four days, he's saying Lazarus is like dead, dead. He ain't kind of dead. He's like dead. The other thing it says is that there's these other Jews that are there with them, consoling them. So when somebody died in that time, it was a little bit different than us. When somebody died at that time, literally they would have 30 days of mourning. That they would grieve over this loved one for 30 days. And if it was, if it was a prominent family, then there would probably be anywhere from 20 to 30 to 40 other people there grieving with them. And we think, for most accounts, it seems that like this was a prominent family. So this is not just Mary and Martha grieving by themselves. This is a whole community of people grieving over the death of Lazarus. And so in verse 20, we're going to see as Jesus begins to talk with the first disappointed sister. Verse 20 says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. So Martha goes out to see Jesus. Mary, the other sister, stays back home. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, if you grew up in church, you kind of know how this story ends. But let's just think about Martha for a second. In that day, there is no 911. There is no hospital to go to. Presumably what happens is her brother gets sick. He gets a terrible illness. They send for Jesus. He doesn't show up. And then all of a sudden, Lazarus, her brother, probably takes his last breath in their home possibly even in Martha's arms. And then Jesus, their good friend, miracle worker, shows up four days late. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Translation, Jesus, where were you? Jesus, when we needed you, you didn't show up. I love the Bible is not afraid of asking these questions. We've all asked these questions. Jesus, where are you? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? So what I want to let you know, if you're asking that question, you're not alone in that. The other thing is Jesus doesn't respond by saying, how dare you ask me that question? He responds by lovingly sharing the truth of who he is with her. Look what he says in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So Jesus says, hey, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha's like, yeah, yeah, I know he's going to rise again the last day. And so this is like another kind of Jewish thought that at the very end of time, God was going to raise up all his people back to life. But what we see here is that Jesus is talking about something different. He's not talking about a final res resurrection on the last day. He's talking about a bodily resurrection today. And even more than that, Jesus is saying something huge here in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, this is a huge statement. Huge. Here's why. 
Because most people in the world are not anti-Jesus. They might not like Christians, but for the most part, people overall think Jesus is a pretty good guy. They think he was like a good teacher. He's like a, you know, like Confucius or a Gandhi or a Buddha or something like that. He just gives good wisdom, stuff like that. So he's a good teacher. But the problem is right here, Jesus does not leave us the category of him just being a good teacher. Because Jesus is saying right here, I am God come in the flesh. See, when Jesus said, I am, everybody hearing that would have understood what he was saying. If we go all the way back to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there's this story of Moses, and Moses goes up, and he's having a conversation with God, and he basically asks God what your name is, what his name is, and God basically responds with, I am. I am the one who has always existed, and I am the one who always will. And when Jesus shows up to Martha, he shows up and says, I am. I am the one who spoke the world into being. I am God, and I am here. Jesus doesn't leave us the option of just being a good teacher. Anybody who says they're God is either a couple things. First, they're either a liar, just saying things that are not true, or they're a lunatic, they're a crazy person. There's a lot of crazy people who say they're God. Like this, you know. He's a crazy person, or he actually is who he says he is. And we have to decide who Jesus is. Do we think he's just lying? Do we think he's deranged? Or do we think he's the son of God? But then Jesus also says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is interesting because he says, believe in me. He is not just giving her sound advice. He is telling her to trust in him, which is a really weird thing to say to somebody who's grieving. Like if somebody's grieving, you might say to them, hey, I know this is really hard, or like, hey, you're going to get through this, or like, you know, hey, I'm like here with all these different things. You can, you can say all these different things, but they're in a better place. Good, like maybe encouraging things to say. But you don't go up to them and say, hey, I'm God, and I'm here. But Jesus is stepping in to Martha's situation saying, hey, I know it is hard. I know you're overwhelmed, but trust in me because I am God, because I am here. And then Martha responds and says, she doesn't understand what is going on exactly, I don't think, but she says, you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Now, she doesn't know what Jesus is planning on doing. She doesn't have a category for that. But she knows that Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah who has come to save his people. And Jesus shows up to Martha, consoling her by sharing the truth of who he is. And that he is there with her. And so, I, honestly, I don't know what is going on with people in the room tonight, but my guess is that some of you need to hear that tonight. That Jesus is showing up with you and saying, hey, I'm here. I am God, and I am here. But the fact that he is the Son of God, which is what Martha just said, makes what he's about to do even crazier. So he's seen he's talked to, to Martha, the older sister. Now he's going to talk to Mary. Remember, Mary has stayed in the house. Jesus calls for her. And then look at verse 32, what happens. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 30, verse 35 says, And Jesus wept. Now, this is crazy. You know, Mary runs out. And then to Martha, Jesus just kind of explains who he is. He gives the truth of who he is. But with Mary, he, he just brings her tears. 
Mary runs up to Jesus, falls at his feet. Seems to be a little bit more of an emotional response here. And she says the exact same word, word for word, what her sister had just said. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus does not come up with a theological explanation of who he is. He just cries with her. It says that Jesus sees, in this verse, it literally says Jesus sees Mary crying, says he sees the family crying, and he sees the tomb of Lazarus. And it says Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is packed with meaning on who Jesus is. Because earlier we saw that Jesus is the Son of God come in power. But also now we see that he is human and he's come to grieve with us. Jesus sees his friends grieving and he weeps with them. He is not indifferent to their pain and disappointment, but he joins in with them. Which is crazy because, like I said, he's, just, he's a son of God. We find him here just crying with his friends. But not to ruin the story, but it's kind of a spoiler. It's been out for 2,000 years here. This, basically what happened is Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's what's going to happen. Which is crazy that Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows the joy that's coming, and he still weeps with her. I am a, I'm a huge Georgia football fan. Don't tell me the score or anything. I don't want to end up. But I'm a huge Georgia football fan. And in college, I would, just, I would go to the games. I would love it. I would go to the games. I would watch the games, kind of all this stuff. And if we won, oftentimes if we won, I would go back home. And later that day, the next day, I would watch highlights. Or sometimes I would even watch the game again which is like crazy, but I would just do it, right? And as I'm watching the game, I already knew what happened. And so as I watched the game, I would see us, you know, like maybe we throw an interception or we fumble or the other team scores. And, and the second time when I, when I already knew the outcome of the game, I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, what's going to, oh my gosh, you know, I wouldn't be freaking out. Why? Because I knew how the story was going to end, right? That's what makes this crazy, this story so crazy. Jesus knows exactly how the story is going to end. He knows what he's about to do in a few moments, and he still weeps with his friends. He still cries with them. It's, inc- it's insane, really. He enters into her pain and her disappointment. And here's the thing you need to know. We can see Jesus then, like 2,000 years ago, and think, okay, man, that was when he was on earth, and maybe a little more human then, and so that's when he was a little more empathetic and sympathetic. He isn't any less human now. And he hasn't changed his emotions at all in the last 2,000 years. Right now, when you experience heartache, pain, suffering, disappointment, Jesus is not in heaven indifferent to your pain and disappointment. But he weeps with you even now. Here's why. If you have trusted in Christ, listen to this. If you have trusted in Christ, Christ has tied his heart to yours. When I got married, I married my wife. And what happens is when you form a relationship so close as a marriage, what you've done in that moment is you have tied your heart together. So that means when my wife has an amazing day, when she hears good news, when things are awesome, I can celebrate with her with another level because I'm so excited for the joy that she's experiencing. But when she experiences some disappointment, some heartache, when she gets bad news, when there's uncertainty of life, I could be gone at work. And even though I'm at work in a whole different place, there is a heaviness in my heart because our hearts have been tied together. Jesus decided to tie his heart to yours if you trust in him. He could have never experienced pain if he didn't want to. But he chose to tie his heart to yours so when you experience pain, he's not indifferent to it, but he weeps with you. 
So Jesus has tied his heart to us, and he experiences the pain with us. But this is not the only emotion that we see Jesus feel here. Look back in verse 33. It says this. After Jesus sees the family and the Jews weeping, it says he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now that word, deeply moved, is not a really great translation there. What it actually means is that Jesus is outraged. And Jesus is angry. It's like the idea of like an animal like snorting or like a, a wrestler before they're about to get into the ring or maybe Laney before she's about to knock somebody out or something like that, right? But Jesus is feeling compassion for Mary, but he's also feeling rage. Now, what would cause Jesus to be raging with anger? The answer is sin and death. See, God did not create the world the way that we are experiencing it. In this world, there's a, a lot of beautiful, amazing things that we get to experience. But there's also a lot of broken things that we experience in this world. And the brokenness of this world comes because of something called sin. Sin at its core is just disobedience and rebellion against God. And so when the first man and woman died, first man and woman sinned, what happened is that death entered into the world, and it did a couple of things. First, sin broke our relationship with God, that we were made to be in perfect relationship with God, to enjoy his presence, to always enjoy being with him. But because of sin, our relationship with God has been broken, and we are eternally separated from him. And that's what makes death so scary. What death really is, is not just when you stop breathing, but death is to be eternally separated from the loving presence of God. Not only is our relationship with God broken, also our relationship with one another is broken. You see, as soon as sin enters into the world, we see that man and woman begin to argue with one another and blame shift. That's why if you look into our culture now, we see things like gossip and abuse and racism and terrible regimes that oppress one another. The reason that happens is because sin has entered into the world. And the last thing is that our sin has broken our relationship with the world itself. The world is broken. Because of sin, we have disease and disaster and devastation, cancer and COVID and natural disasters that take human life. And when Jesus sees sin and its effects and how it impacts humanity, he responds with rage. Now, we don't like to think of Jesus as angry. We like a cute Jesus that's nice and kind and, and cries with us, which is who he is. But this says Jesus is angry, and here's the reason why. This is important to get. I want you to think about the person that you love most person that you care about deeply, person that you are really close with. That could be a mom, your mom, dad, that could be a little brother, little sister, somebody in a relationship with, whoever that is. I want you to just imagine this person being mistreated, being made fun of, being hurt, abused, whatever. When you begin to think about that, what is the emotion that begins to kind of come up inside of you? When I think about, if I, if I pick my, my daughter, if I think about my daughter, and somebody like messing with her, hurting her. The emotion that begins to well up inside of me is anger, right? And the reason that anger is welling up inside of me is because I love her. And when I see someone that I love being mistreated and hurt, the natural response is anger. Like anger is not the opposite of love, right? The opposite of love is indifference. But when Jesus, so think about this. So me, as a broken man, sinful man, I love my daughter a certain amount, 
And because of my love for my daughter, I have this anger towards the what is, whoever and whatever is mistreating her. Now I want you to think about the Son of God, love wrapped in flesh, who feels everything perfectly. Sin has not distorted his emotions at all. He loves us greater than we could ever imagine and ever dream. Imagine the anger and the rage he feels when he sees sin impacting his beloved children. And it responds with rage and anger. Jesus loves you way too much to be indifferent. And Jesus, we see what's happening here is Jesus is filled with compassion towards those that he loves and with rage towards the sin that is hurting them. And this all sets up verse 38 where we see the showdown between Jesus and death itself. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. As Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You see the beginning of verse 38 says, then Jesus deeply moved again. That's that same word that Jesus is angry because he is standing in front of the tomb, which represents sin and death itself. And Jesus tells them, take away the tomb, take away the stone. And then Martha steps up the reminder to say, Jesus, I don't know if you remember, but like he's been in there four days. There would be an odor by now. It would smell. The, the King James Version le- literally says it stinketh. Like, it smells so bad. <laughs> it's, it's true. You can look it up. But what they're trying to remind us here is Lazarus is not, did not just fall asleep. Lazarus is dead dead. His body is already beginning to decay. They roll back the stone, and then Jesus prays this amazing prayer where he basically says, Hey, Father, I know you're already going to do this. I've already asked for this. You've already told me you're going to do it. But I'm praying now so everybody can know that, you're doing, that I'm doing everything by your power. And then he says, and like, think about Jesus. Let's think about this moment. This is insane. He's looking into this tomb. He's looking into death itself, and he says, Lazarus, come out. Most commentators say if Jesus didn't say Lazarus, every dead body would have got out of the tomb that day. Even dead bodies obey his word. And then Jesus says to them, The dead man walks out. They call him the dead man. They want to just remember who he is. And that day, he would have had a sheet wrapped around him, and his feet would have been tied together, his hands would have been tied together. And they have to go. He says, hey, go and bind them. And he goes, and they take off his clothes. The reason they take off his clothes is because, like, you know, a live person doesn't wear dead man's clothes. They said, take it off. So here's what's going on here. I mean, there is so much to say, say here. I mean, this is insane. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody raised to life four days after they're dead, but like, this is crazy. There's a ton I want to unpack, but I just want to get to one point here. We're really seeing right here, this is the showdown between Jesus and death itself. And Jesus is making a, defi- a, 
definitive decision right here. See, Jesus knew the only way that he could call Lazarus out of the tomb is if he was willing to go into the tomb himself. And the only way that Jesus could interrupt Lazarus' funeral was he had to start his own. Right here, Jesus, the Son of God, the resurrection of life is showing the way he's going to defeat sin and death is by dying and rising again. But here's the thing. See, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, but the reality is Lazarus died again at some point, right? I mean, I think we would know if there's a guy named Lazarus who'd been around for 2,000 years. I think we would have heard about it by now. See, what we really needed was not a momentary miracle that would help our disappointment, but a defeat of sin and death itself, and that is exactly what Jesus came to do. What Jesus did was he came and lived the perfect life that none of us could have ever lived. He obeyed the Father always. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved, which is death itself. And then Jesus was put in the tomb just like Lazarus. But three days later, Jesus walked out of that tomb. And when he walked out of that tomb, he forever defeated sin and death. And unlike Lazarus, when Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, death never touched him again. And when he walked out, this was the beginning of the end for death itself. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, he opened up the door for those who have trusted in him that when you walk into the grave, you walk right into eternity with the Father. Jesus has opened up the tomb for all of us. And he is saying that he is the resurrection who defeated sin and death. He has come to give eternal life to all who believe in him. We see that Jesus defeated death by dying and rising again. What we see is there is no one like Jesus. Josh was talking about the other night. There is no one who has the power to raise dead men back to life with his word, but is also willing to die in others' place. There is no one who spoke the world into being and cries with those who are brokenhearted. He is both strong and tender. He is both human and divine. He is the Son of God, the resurrection and the life, and he has come to live and die in your place and rise again, and he's inviting all to trust in him and receive eternal life. And so I want you to think tonight, when you think about this story, who are you in the story tonight? Who are you in this story? There's a couple options for you. Some of you, some of you are Lazarus in the grave right now. You might not know it, but all of us at one point are dead in our sin. And just like Lazarus, we need spiritual life. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't say to him, hey, here's how to be a better Lazarus. No, he tells a dead man to get out of the grave. That is the picture of a Christian life. Carson was saying it earlier. It's not making yourself better, cleaning yourself up. It's Jesus says, dead to alive. And the way you get this new life is by doing what Martha did, by trusting in Jesus. Not trusting he's a good teacher, not just thinking he's a good dude, but thinking he actually is the son of God, the savior of the world who died and rose again. And you must surrender your life to him. And here's the reality. I knew in a room this size that Jesus is calling some of your names out right now. I don't know your name, but he does. And he is literally calling some of you out of the tomb of your sin tonight into eternal life and into a relationship with him tonight. And he is inviting you into that from death to life. But some of you are Lazarus, but you still have the grave clothes on. See, some of you, you came to Christ maybe last week or a few years ago. But you walked out of the tomb, but you kept on the grave clothes. 
But dead men don't wear, I mean, a lot of people don't wear dead men's clothes. That when you rose to new life, you were given resurrection power by the Holy Spirit. And so whatever the old you, the old dead you that is on, whether it's addiction to pornography or it's a, a impure thoughts or it's a anger, temper, hatred, racism, whatever is on you, Jesus is saying, take off the grave clothes. Take them off. They don't look right on you anymore. And if you notice, how does he take them off? He calls his friends to come take them off with him. We need brothers and sisters to show us, man, where are the grave clothes that we still have on? What do we need to take off to walk in the newness of life of what Jesus invited us into? But some of you, honestly, some of you are Martha and Mary. And you're on day two right now. And you're waiting on Jesus to show up. And you're thinking, Jesus, where are you? Something may be happening this week, and you're thinking, Jesus, where are you? Why don't you show up? A couple things for you. First, remember, Jesus has not lost any compassion in the last 2,000 years. He still wants to weep with you. He has still tied his heart to yours if you have trusted in him. The second thing is he still has resurrection power. He can still raise the dead. He can still heal. He can still do all these things. He's not any less powerful now than he was then. And he still wants to do these things. So we're going to spend some time asking for these things tonight. But the other thing I wanted to remind you of is that remember that he did come to solve your biggest problem. All of us have a lot of issues in our life, a lot of problems that we need God's help with. But the biggest problem that all of us have was sin and death itself. And he came and died in your place and rose again. So you never have to experience that. So the reality is, honestly, I have been all three of these in my life. I have been, uh, I was more, my story is more closer than mice. I grew up in a, you know, Christian family, but, you know, I, I wasn't following Jesus. And I was literally sitting basically where you are. And I remember a, a pastor talk. I don't remember what he said, probably you, like, you don't even know what I'm saying. But he, I just remember a pastor talking to me, and I remember saying, man, I don't know Jesus. And I want to trust in him and have a relationship with God. It wasn't an audible voice that I heard, right? My name wasn't written on the screen or anything. But I knew Jesus was calling me from death to life. And that night, I trusted in Christ. Along with that, though, it's not like once I trusted in Christ, I didn't have any issues anymore. I still had all these bad habits and sin struggles. I was still wearing the grave clothes. I needed brothers and sisters in Christ to show me those things, show me the pride that I was carrying around, how my identity was still tied with, like, you know, athletics or achievements or academics instead of tied to him. And I needed brothers and sisters in Christ to show me those things. And then if I'm honest, I feel like I'm still Martha and Mary. I'm still kind of like Jesus, show up. My health is better than it's been in a long time, and praise God. But I still want full and total healing, and I'm asking him to do that. And some of you might be there too. But a couple things, is I will say this. In the midst of my suffering, which has been so hard, and I would never want to do it again. I don't want to do that again. I can say in the midst of that suffering, I did feel so close to Jesus. Right? They often say, you know, probably heard it said that the best trees don't grow, don't grow on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. And Jesus is so close to us in the midst of our pain and disappointment, if you want him to be. And he wants to weep with us. The second thing I've learned is not to base Jesus' love based off my circumstances, but based off the cross. My circumstances at times doesn't look like he loves me, but the cross is God screaming at me, I love you, I love you, I love you. And so tonight, this is what we're going to do. I just want to give you a chance to respond. If you are Lazarus 
and you're thinking tonight, maybe you grew up in church or maybe you didn't, but you want to trust in Christ, you want to surrender your life, you want to know Jesus, you want to know this hope that is greater than the grave itself, you want resurrection life, we want you to come get that tonight. All you have to do is trust in Jesus to admit that you've sinned against him and trust in him as your savior and follow after him. We wanna give you a chance to do that. If you're right now, you feel like you got some grave clothes on, that you want somebody to pray over you and pray that God will help you walk in newness of life, we wanna let you do that. Or if you are Mary and Martha and you want a miracle, if you want God to move, or if you just need to know that he loves you and that you are just grieving and you need to know that Jesus is weeping with you and you want a brother or sister to weep with you as well, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that as well. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have the staff is gonna come up on the front or on the sides and we're just gonna spend some time responding in prayer. And whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like the Lord is calling you to do tonight, whether to come up to trust in Christ, whether to get prayed over, whatever it is, we just want to open up this room just to provide a place for you to respond to the good news of Jesus, to the one who loves you so much that he left heaven to come and live and die and went to the tomb and came out defeating sin and death. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that tonight there is somebody here, some people here that I'm sure are, God, they're Lazarus right now. And and Jesus, you are calling them out. That they can tell right now, they can feel it. They've been thinking about you all weekend. You've been pursuing them for a long time and you are calling them from death to life. And so, Father, I pray that they will say yes, that they will trust in you and they will get out of the grave and into the newness of life. That starts now. And so I pray for that. God, I pray for some that is struggling with addiction, struggling with pornography, just struggling with sin struggles, patterns, Lord God, frustration, anger, apathy, whatever it is. Whatever the grave clothes they're wearing, God, I pray that they will drop those tonight. And I pray that we can pray over them and love them, care for them well. And God, I pray for those who are hurting, who are grieving, who are disappointed. Jesus, we want you to show up in their lives tonight. And I pray tonight is day four where you show up for them. And so we want to see that happen. And so, Father, we just want to open up this space just to spend the time just where people can pray, pray and respond to however you're leading. In your holy name I pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. In a second, I'm going to stand you up. When I stand you up, the band's going to play in a few minutes. But when I stand you up, I want, if you want to get prayed over for any reason, nobody's going to think it's weird, right? If you don't want to come up, you can pray for the person beside you. That's totally fine, too. But we just want to give you the opportunity to respond tonight to whatever Jesus is calling to you to do. Okay, so on three, I'm going to get all of us to stand up. And if you want to come down and get prayed for, you can come on down and get prayed over. Or you can go to the sides and the staff will pray over you as well. And then the band will start, will lead us in worship in a few minutes. Okay, so let's all stand on three. One, two, three. If you want to come and get prayed over tonight, we ask you to go ahead and come, come down. If you want to come out of the grave tonight, if you want to get prayed for healing, whatever you need, we want to create a space for you to get prayed over tonight.